This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open sourced Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at Sentry.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Ferry. Hey! David Richards. Hello! Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Pratamesh Sonpatki. Hello, everyone. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. So my name is Pratamesh. I'm based out of Pune, India. I work for Big Binary. Uh, you might have heard about Big Binary from some of our blog posts. Uh, we publish a lot of blog posts on Ruby, Rails, and you might have come across some of those. Uh, I have also spoken at some conferences uh, like RailsCon, uh, RubyCon Singapore, and uh, some other conferences. And I'm also organizer of a co-organizer of RubyConf India and Deccan RubyCon, the two Ruby conferences in India. That sounds like fun. I've always wanted to make it out there. I actually worked for a company a few years ago that had me working with a QA team out of India and they kept talking about sending us out. I actually filled out the paperwork to get a, a visa and then I wound up leaving the company. But yeah. <laughs> actually getting a visa for US citizens has become a lot easier these days. Uh, you can get a e-visa very quickly. So uh like if you need an excuse to come in here, I think uh, you can come next year for the 10th edition of uh, RubyConf India, which is happening in January. That would be a ton of fun. Well, we brought you on to talk about uh, Rails 5. And uh, you, it looks like you've given a couple of conference talks about it. Uh, do you want to just talk about a little bit about what you've been doing with Rails 5 and, and what you've been digging into with uh, testing and, and, and hidden features of Rails 5? Uh, yeah, so I had given uh, a few talks on uh, features of Rails 5 as well as uh, testing uh, changes in Rails 5. So uh, during the uh, Rails 5 release, uh, some of the major changes happened uh, in the testing scenarios. Uh, for example, uh, in the uh, previous versions of Rails, uh, the controller tests uh, used to work differently. And now they work a bit differently. Now the focus is more on uh, integration testing, end-to-end -end testing, rather than um, the functional level uh, testing where you just test uh, that uh, a controller action uh, works successfully and uh, some 200 or 400 response return. Uh, instead of that, now the more focus is on end-to-end -end testing because even if we test um, whether the controller returned a proper uh, response or not, that doesn't mean whether uh, your page actually showed what you expected. So uh, during the subsequent release, releases after Rails 5, uh, there is also a feature uh, for uh, system tests, uh, which, uh, which was introduced in, I think, Rails 5.1, uh, wherein you can uh, run your Capybara test, uh, test within Rails 
you can generate those tests uh, without adding uh, extra dependencies the feature is itself uh, present in rails so that was uh, some of the that was one of the biggest change that happened during the rails 5 5.1 um, releases uh, in the testing philosophy in the uh, rails apps so we we've, we've been able to run copybara tests for a while to do end to end tests and what you're saying is is that now you don't have to pull in like the copybara web uh, what is it yes so the gem uh, earlier you you have to include the gem and lot of other dependencies right. uh, to uh, get it working but now it is just part of rails when you generate a new um, a resource uh, using the default generators you also get system test templates uh, with that so you don't need to do a lot of things to uh, set it up properly and make it work with other parts of rails so for example uh, one of the biggest challenge uh, before this was that uh, as you know the integration test uh, they have to reload a lot of data right i mean you need to roll back uh, some of the transactions uh, to mm-hmm. get to the earlier state and that was always a painful uh, task to do before rails uh, introduced this feature because uh, in the unit test uh, the transactions uh, get rolled back automatically in rails so you don't need to do um, anything extra but otherwise uh, for feature tests or capybara tests you need to use uh, tools like database cleaner uh, to roll back to the previous state after uh, each test is completed but now uh, you don't need to do that because that has become part of rails itself so um, Eileen Yushitel uh, from Rails Core team. She worked on that, this feature, and while working on the system test feature, she also uh, did some refactoring on the uh, database cleaning side. So uh, now you do, so basically that's what you get out of the box. Uh, everything just works uh, properly with the Rails internals, and it just uh, comes out of the box from uh, default Rails stack. Yeah, with the capybara test or system test in Rails 5.1 and later, you still do have to worry about getting your Chrome driver or the Gecko driver if you're doing a Firefox thing. So those are still system dependencies that you need. And depending on how you're doing it, like on your local Mac development environment or something, it's really not too bad. You could just do a brew install Gecko driver or Chrome driver, and typically it'll work, especially if you have Chrome and Firefox already installed. It gets a lot more annoying in CI/CD scenarios where uh, there is no head, so there is no GUI, so you have to run in headless, and it just gets a bit more quirky. Uh, but I believe with system tests, you can still fall back to Poltergeist uh, for the JavaScript driver to run the system tests. actually uh, chrome has introduced a headless driver as well recently so uh, yeah. i think that can also be used uh, now with the system test so that might uh, solve some of the problems uh, that are uh, present only in ci with the headless browser thing could you also yeah. get something like cypress or some of those Yeah, yeah. Cypress is also a very interesting tool, and uh, actually, we have been exploring it in uh, some of our projects at uh, Big Binary. So, what we are trying to do is um, use Cypress outside of Rails and give it a staging URL where we have the uh, predefined data. So, we have some uh, projects where uh, there is a lot of interaction between uh, two, three portals, like the data flows from one portal to another. and then uh, we have to do the uh, tests uh, such a way that the information flow is also tested for example uh, some status message gets uh, transmitted from a uh, portal 1 to portal 2 and then something changes in portal 1 based on that so uh, for testing that uh, the system tests are not really useful uh, that are uh, present in rails so a tool like cypress allows us to basically hit different urls and then come back and assert few tests 
so we have been exploring with Cypress and it uh, it has turned out to be good so far. Uh, the only um, uh, issue uh, in Cypress is that you have to uh, basically uh, make sure that the elements that uh, you're using in your website are uh, flexible enough uh, so that your tests don't break when you change um, uh, the UI. So that is the only thing. And you need to be aware of the uh, DOM structure for finding out the uh, paths of each of the element. Yeah, and you also have to make sure that the data is consistent because that's just a web or a, a front end for running the test. It doesn't actually run it at the system level. So you're not going to be able to do a database cleanup afterwards, are you? Correct. So uh, we do that through cron. Like uh, yeah. every midnight, we run few tasks to uh, reset the data properly. And it's in our staging environment, so uh, it's completely fine <laughs> to reset. Yeah. Cool. So I'm just going to throw this out there. I really hate testing. I mean, we all test <laughs> to some degree. But, you know, if you're going to do like some really good code coverage and good tests, testing all your happy paths and end case scenarios, and if you're working with a really large application, you're going to end up having more tests than you do your actual business logic. And I mean, that is a good thing. You know, don't get me wrong. But that, that still doesn't change the fact that it's really annoying to write them sometimes. Well, I, I'm with you there. I've been working a lot on this system to run the podcast, and I'll admit that I have a bunch of tests, and they're all pending. <laughs> <laughs> I remember a talk that um, I was given probably years and years back by um, Mike Moore, who's a, a local, well, was a local uh, Ruby guy here that um, ran the uh, Mountain West Ruby Conf and uh, is also the creator of uh, many test rails. Um, and he gave a talk about testing and how uh, he, he essentially rated the value of tests from the outside in. Basically, if I remember right, and I took I was so amazed by it. I took photos back then of his slides, but if I remember right, he, he rated everything by by value, and he said that you get the the least amount of value typically from unit tests and the most amount of value from the overall integration tests. And it was very much about like people focus so much on writing these these little tiny unit tests that you know you know they essentially test a single a single method, but. At, at the end of the day, what you really need to make sure is tested is that cross-the-board integration, which, I mean, at the time, it was fairly hard. I don't even think Capybara was out um, when he gave that presentation, but what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, one thing actually, that I'll, I'll just add to that, you know, you're, you're saying that Mike basically stated that, um, you know, you get the most value from the, you know, end-to-end -end integration tests and the least value your any given unit tests. And I've, I've more or less heard uh, uh, DHH say uh, similar things where he prefers the end-to-end -end testing as well, um, just because you can see that everything integrates properly and plays nicely together. True. And uh, unit tests uh, sometimes don't actually uh, give us a uh, real confidence about uh, whether it is working fine or not, because they are kind of uh, superficial tests, at least in terms of... Um, website interactions. Uh, for example, uh, if we think about the uh, functional controller tests uh, that were present before Rails 5, uh, they might return the proper response back, but uh, 
whether the page rendered correctly or whether there were, there was some javascript error on the page uh, which uh, sort of caused some issue we are not sure about it so in such cases uh, end to end tests uh, are really good and they give uh, they can give us uh, 100% confidence that things are working properly uh, the other issue is that uh, nowadays uh, we use a lot of javascript in our front end code so uh, just uh, having um, unit tests uh, doesn't mean that we are testing all these scenarios and because uh, because of the use of complex javascript it is not even uh, sometimes easy to uh, write the uh, feature tests um, and uh, in such scenarios end to end testing uh, makes more sense in terms of coverage as well as in terms of accuracy so what's your testing approach then for rails 5 applications and i'm kind of asking in general of everybody uh, so uh, we are writing lots more uh, feature specs than uh, simple controller specs. We are sort of uh, abandoned writing uh, normal uh, controllers uh, tests that we used to write. And uh, we are moving towards uh, more and more integration tests. The model level unit test and uh, other code, uh, like unit tests for other codes are still there. But uh, we have almost skipped writing the uh, controller tests that we used to write before. Yeah, that makes sense. You you keep mentioning the like the functional or controller tests, and I have almost never written those. Um, I just found that they didn't always give me what what I needed. You know, uh, it give me some HTML back or some JSON back, and I could kind of check the structure on it, but it it didn't accurately portray what my app was supposed to be doing as well as a Copybara level test. Actually, uh, the funny thing about uh, those functional level tests uh, was that they were very easy to write. <laughs> so uh, you could write them very quickly. And uh, Capybara tests, if you think about it, they take a lot of time to write. Like you have to mm-hmm. um, build the page objects if you are using uh, page objects uh, and then uh, make sure that uh, the uh, page is getting loaded correctly. You have to know the DOM structure to write uh, some of the uh, code. So. Uh, Feature tests or capability tests are a bit hard to write. And uh, sometimes that uh, that also means that you write a lot of controller tests because uh, they are a bit easy to write. So I think that was also one of the reasons um, where a lot of people were writing those kind of tests. That's definitely true. I've written some pretty long Selenium-based <laughs> stuff. And yeah, th- those were painful to write. Uh, I mean, when, when they exercised you know, a happy path through the code or things like that, it definitely was worth it, but yeah, they weren't, they weren't as much fun to write. Yeah. I find that a lot of the capybara tests that I write are super slow just because some of the applications I work on are really large and the amount of setup work or the initial work that has to be done uh, to generate the database fields and the data in order to perform a feature test, it's just excruciatingly slow. So yeah, I'm trying to find a better way to just inject the data while still using random sample data to see if things are working properly. But, you know, for example, if you have a business which has many users and each one of those users are assigned to multiple business logic profiles, user will enter in data and then you run business logic calculations based on what profiles they're assigned to. You know, all of that kind of setup, initial setup work can be extremely slow if you're trying to test a thousand different scenarios. So I try to do a lot more um, service object tests. So we don't, we have pretty skinny controllers and skinny models and we kind of put everything in its own 
service object kind of place. And from there, we can test the individual service objects doing the smaller calculations. And then we can test combinations of those. And if we know those are going to work out correctly, then we can minimize the number of feature tests that we have or gear more towards just a happy path to make sure that the most critical aspects of our business function are being covered in the feature tests. But some of the more, you know, lesser critical uh, things we're just covering heavily in the service object tests. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, the other uh, uh, path that we are taking uh, in uh, running the test is that uh, don't run the feature tests uh, in um, every pull request build because uh, what happens sometimes is that, and that happened in uh, one of our projects where uh, there were around uh, 20 to 25 developers working on that project at the same time. And everyone was uh, pushing to Circle CI. And then everyone was waiting for uh, like one or two hours uh, because the feature tests were taking a lot of time. So uh, initially, we did some optimizations in um, the sequence in which the tests ran. Uh, and also, we uh, uh, did some optimizations based on which tests should run. So that application was huge. Uh, it uh, contained a lot of Rails engines uh, and two, three Rails applications within a single repository. And all the specs ran every time. So we made some optimization to detect whether uh, this particular uh, application had changed or not in the code based on Git, and then only run tests for those. But all of those optimizations uh, worked well for some time. And then because the tests were increasing uh, every day, uh, we were facing those problems again and again. So uh, the best way, I think, in uh, those scenarios is not to run all the tests all the time, but run them um, uh, like twice a day or thrice a day instead of every uh, pull request build. Yeah. Yeah, we I typically do it on CI. Yeah, we run our feature tests on the master branch. So whenever something it's or a release branch. So if we are prepping a release or... Uh, merging into master, then the feature tests will run. Other than that, we just run our uh, non-feature tests, you know, on every push. So um, I had something else, but I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself out there and say I don't write integration tests. I very rarely write integration tests because it seems like every time I start testing, the tests that I'm writing are pre-interface. Um, and for me to test interfaces, I'm, it's just never anything that I've actually built into my brain. And I can't really think of any companies aside from a long time ago, this one company, where I wrote integration tests and I didn't enjoy doing it. In fact, it was quite painful because they were all Selenium based. Um, so, you know, it's hard for me to, to look and, and say, I, I can receive value from this where, and it's one of those things like, you know, I should, I should exercise and diet, right? Because I know that at the end of the day, I'll be happier, but you know, freaking Big Macs are so damn good. What can you do? Uh, same, <laughs> so same thing with, uh, right? It's the same thing with, uh, with integration tests and testing overall. I mean, I enjoy writing tests, but not, not integration tests because that interface keeps changing. Have you guys run into it where you're like, it's frustrating because you maybe change a CSS tag or you change this and that in the interface and all of a sudden it breaks all your tests? Is that, is that a thing? Absolutely. Yeah, but... I think that we have a little bit of a mix in terminology. I usually refer to integration tests as where 
multiple components of the application are interacting with one another or with a third party API or something. So it's not even necessarily using a user interface like a Selenium. And I usually call those feature tests or regression tests or um, system tests, what Rails 5.1 and later calls them. But I do try to avoid writing as you said, Eric, uh, the feature test as much as possible, but integration tests where you are testing interactions between maybe two different models or uh, two different service objects, I think does have value. Just to make sure they're not stepping on each other's toes. But the actual headless or Chrome drivers or you know the feature tests, I try to avoid, mm-hmm. except well, for the happy paths. Yeah, the, the other thing is, is when I'm testing... Uh, initially, when I was writing these kinds of tests, it was really painful because I would specify in great detail the the layout of the page, right? So it was, there should be this class and inside it, there should be this, you know, I did with this class and inside it, there should be a table and inside the table, there should be a row with this information in it. And you know, what I found is then I'd rearrange the page and it'd break all that stuff. And so yeah. what I wound up doing instead is the happy path was you know, uh, it'll, it signs in, you know, and the sign in interface is, you know, usually pretty static if you're using something like um, device or something like that. So it signs in and then it goes and it clicks on the add new whatever, add new widget button. And then it fills in the form. And again, most of those fields are going to be pretty stable, pretty static. You know, I only have to change that if I change that form. And then um, when it takes me back out to either the show page or the index page, I just make sure that it shows up there somewhere, right? So it wasn't there before and now it is. And, and you know, by keeping it relatively simple, my criteria is essentially I can follow the happy path and create an object or, you know, an entity in the system that I can now interact with. And, mm-hmm. and without specifying in, in great detail, it should show up in this row of the table, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it, it allows it to be flexible enough to where I'm essentially just saying the critical functionality is there. And if there are any uh, UX or UI concerns, um, you know, I need to visually inspect those. But that, that's not a silver bullet. It just, it helps with some of the issues where, yeah, every time you change the interface, you have an issue on your, on your end-to-end test. Yeah, we have a very similar approach to that uh, as well, Chuck, where we don't try to dig through to find a very specific element. We just say, is it there on that page? All right, cool. Uh, But one thing I've found that I love doing is, especially on my CI CDs, is uh, adding in the parallel tests. So you can execute multiple jobs or multiple parallel tests at the same time. And that is significantly increase the amount of time or decrease the amount of time it takes our tests to run. Before they took an hour and a half or so, now they run in 20 minutes. Yeah, that's always an issue too. I mean, 20 minutes is still too long to run every time you commit uh, on your local machine. I mean, you know, before yeah. you don't want to sit there and wait for 20 minutes between finishing what you think you've got done and committing. But, uh, you know, having CI and CD run it for you and give you feedback, you know, possibly even before you run your next commit, depending on what you're building, that, that's really, really convenient. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, 
flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price-to-performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash rubyrogues. I've, I've, I've thought about lately, um, sometimes when things really go badly and everybody's figuring things out, it's this stuff that the, that the CI did, the tests that we ran, that will go through a, a mental check. Okay, what do we know works or how do we know it works? So it's, it's almost like some of these things, like, like you guys are saying, we don't want to run them every time and they're not really as helpful developing or, or deploying an app but it's a lot more helpful when things go really wrong to say, not only do I get um, that this stuff should work, but also sometimes it gives me breadcrumbs of, well, how do I know that it works? And then I can quickly, you know, cause if it's in the middle of the night and things are going wrong and I can, I, I found myself doing this last night. Uh, we were reading old tests to see, well, why does this system integrate this way? And then, and then it gave me breadcrumbs to make sure it was okay. So I like that idea. If we can push it back into the CI and not worry about it, it's just stuff that runs some of the time, but it doesn't slow me down as a developer. It's really, really valuable to have it around after when, when I must need it. One of the things I also do too is if I am noticing that on my CI that one of the tests failed, it's really hard to get visibility into why did it actually fail. Luckily, I have the code on my computer and I can execute that specific test on my own environment. But if you are using something like feature tests, the database is going to clean itself up and it's going to wipe out that data. So you kind of lose sight of it. So I usually have some environment variables that can pass in when I'm executing a test. And that's going to skip the cleanup job that gets ran to remove the data. And the script that I have also will take a dump of the test database, move it over into my development environments test database, uh, run any kind of you know post setup scripts that it has to do, whether it's re-indexing the database or whatever, and then it'll restart the Rails application for me. So I can quickly run the failing test, run my script, and then right there on my development environment, I can go into the GUI or whatever to reproduce the issue to then debug why is that test failing. <laughs> that's wisdom right there. That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> so are there any other parts of uh, testing Rails in this way that have changed in Rails 5? Uh, not in the Rails 5. So in Rails 5, the main change was related to the um, functional controller tests and then uh, system tests were introduced later. And uh, in Rails 6, uh, parallel testing uh, will also be introduced. So uh, that feature will allow us to run the parallel te uh, tests in parallel using uh, workers, threads, and using different databases at the same time. So uh, as we discussed, like uh, we can run that in CI right now using uh, gems like parallel tests. But now uh, after Rails 6, uh, it will also be possible to uh, run it locally uh, using um, different databases and um, using different uh, workers and threads. So that feature uh, is merged into master right now, and uh, it will be part of the next release. It will be basically um, part of the default stack. So we can just use it to run tests parallelly. Yeah, I love the idea of parallel tests. Do you know how they're implementing that? Is that done through 
just by forking processes or are they doing things like, uh, you know, spinning up multiple Docker images or anything like that? Uh, no. So the default way is using uh, forking processes. I think for JRuby, it will work a bit differently. Um, I, I don't think uh, there is any involvement of um, uh, running Dockers because that is very custom setup for every application. So this has to be uh, made in such a way that it is applicable to all Rails applications, almost all Rails applications. So it will just use the forking mechanism. And I know with the parallel test, Jim, it uses multiple databases. It just uses a increment number based on which process or however many number of processes you're using. Is the Rails 6 approach taking that same route where it's going to use multiple databases, one for each test or test process? Correct. Yes. So for each uh, process, it will have a, a database with that particular number. So uh, like... Database 0, 1, 2, 3, uh, uh, in that way. So funny story about running parallel tests. I got a Mac Pro on sale, uh, uh, iMac Pro. So I never had a computer with so many threads available. So I went to run the test on one of our large applications, and the system just completely like freaked out. It had no idea what to do with so many like parallel Ruby processes going at the same time. And the database engine just completely died on me. I had no, it, it was, it was actually really hard to troubleshoot because it was all the, uh, the settings for that environment for the database engine. I had to really beef up its specs and settings in order to handle, you know, uh, 24 or 32 processes going at it at the same time. First world problem, I guess. <laughs> Speaking about issues with uh, Apple, so it's been. <laughs> dude, I swear, I have bad, bad. This is a, like a personal offset story, but it, it's fun to share. Um, recently, my um, my MacBook Pro. I had this custom ordered high end MacBook Pro, like maxed out. Uh, die on me. The keyboard died and I couldn't reset it and the whole thing was just kind of bonkers. So I took it down to the Apple store and uh, I said, hey, the keyboard's broken and I can't restart it. So can you please fix it? So they had to ship it off to a company. In the meantime, I'm out of a computer. So I bought another one. I bought another um, a 15 inch, uh, their latest 15 inch. Now, again, this is a month ago, right? The latest 15 inch I purchased and I had two weeks to return it. So I get this computer and they email me because I expect to get this other one back within two weeks for sure so I can return the new one. So I, they email me and they say, hey, we cannot fix your computer. We're going to send you a brand new one. Your warranty resets. You can repurchase Apple Care. Anything you want to do, but you're going to get a brand new one. Okay, fine. So now I'm like, okay, I, I have to commit to this new laptop that I bought because um, I'm going to have to wait for more than two weeks to get this other one back. So the other one gets back. And so I can't sell the dang thing. And on top of that, Apple literally released like the day after I get the laptop back, a brand new set of laptops. And so, <laughs> like, so instant devaluation of this thing. And I'm like, no. So here I am. I have two laptops. One of them I haven't even opened yet. I can't sell the dang thing. And uh, <laughs> there's a brand new one that I just bought, which is already out of date. So, again, first world problem right there. That's funny. You should have gone for a Mac Mini. Then again, I, those I thought about it. I thought about too. it. Yeah, yeah. I or thought they're about getting it, but I'm like, 
Yeah, I, you know, it's just one of those things. You buy it, and the next day it's out of date. Yeah. So, Pratamesh, um, you, you ha- we talked a whole bunch about secrets of testing Rails 5 apps. Um, what are the hidden features of Rails 5? What did you talk about at uh, RubyConf PH? Uh, so at RubyCon Philippines, I talked about uh, some of the features in Rails 5 that are not really uh, like talked about a lot. Uh, for example, uh, there are uh, some features which are like version migrations. So uh, what happens is that uh, when uh, some of the Rails internal API changes, then um, our migrations, uh, which sometimes depend on um, some of the uh, internal code, uh, that they might fail. For example, sometimes um, new uh, keys are added to support a particular, uh, let's say, foreign keys, right? So let's say uh, there is a, a new key that has been added uh, that uh, sets up the uh, foreign keys across uh, multiple tables. And during the uh, Rails upgrades, uh, the Rails team has to take care of making sure that uh, while changing the API, you don't uh, accidentally break the migrations of uh, old applications. But now what will happen is that um, each migration will get a version number. So that way uh, it becomes easier to uh, manage the uh, API changes across a different version. So for example, the API uh, has changed for foreign keys and one a new option has been added for, let's say, adding some constraint. And that option will only be applicable uh, from Rails 5.2 onwards. So the migrations that are created before that uh, will not have um, any effect because they will have a specific version that, okay, they have a version of uh, Rails 5.1. So the migrations that are created for 5.2 and 5.1 will be uh, independent of each other. So that that is one of the um, uh, small change that was not uh, talked about a lot. Uh, apart from that, there were some changes related to testing as well, uh, which we uh, discussed earlier. Then uh, there was a change about um, rendering uh, views outside of the uh, controller actions. So normally what happens is that uh, we render the uh, views uh, in our controllers. Uh, We render views or JSON uh, responses. But now um, with the introduction of this change, uh, we can actually uh, render the views in our background jobs as well. So if you want to uh, return a template, uh, from your uh, code, which is not part of any controller, that is now possible. And uh, that helps uh, in scenarios where, let's say, uh, you have a, a WebSocket-based uh, page where you want to return some response uh, from the WebSocket response uh, using Action Cable. And now it is possible uh, to use the same view template, but uh, return that response um, outside of the uh, normal request response flow. So I talked about such features, uh, which are not the like which are not the main features of Rails 5, but still uh, very useful features for uh, developers. Like some of the features uh, were also related to caching. Uh, for example, um, earlier the uh, rendering of individual items in the uh, fragment caching was done um, uh, in a slower way because it was rendering each partial uh, one by one. But now that happens uh, in parallel. Like all the partials are fetched in a single request. So that speeds up the uh, process of uh, rendering collection fragments. So there was a gem earlier, uh, multi-patch fragments uh, for this particular uh, uh, task, and that became part of uh, Rails 5 itself. So, yeah. I'm not sure Uh, if I completely followed that. So you can render your templates using a a job? 
Yes. So basically, earlier uh, what used to uh, happen was that uh, you can only render your templates uh, using controllers, right? In the controller, mm-hmm. uh, you can render uh, a particular view or a particular JSON response and so on. Now, uh, what happens is that uh, there is an API uh, for the renderer object itself, which can be used outside of the controller code. So you don't need to have the controller uh, to render a response. You can gen- you can just use that particular API and directly render the response um, outside of your controller action. So typically what happens is that uh, to render a response, you also need a request, right? Because request, uh, you first get the request, you process that request, and based on that, you return the response. And response is usually returned in the same format as the uh, request format that came in. But now uh, with this new API, uh, you can also build a a kind of an environment, like a mock environment for uh, that request. So we can render responses uh, without having a request. And that helps in um, scenarios where you want to uh, return a particular page, uh, let's say through uh, action cable, because uh, you don't have a request for that, but something happened, you need to now return the response, right? So that can uh, that is now possible. Yeah, I did a Drifter Ruby episode on the action controller renderer in the past. I think it was back in 2016. And since then, I found it uh, exactly like you said, using it in action cable or some other kind of transaction where we're not really in a controller, but we're outside of that domain entirely. But we still need to render a view and have that pushed up to the client to refresh just a portion of their page. Right. And uh, what it allows us to do is basically uh, keep the view same. So uh, we can have the same partial, uh, which will uh, be used for normal uh, request response and which can also be used for this purpose where you just need to return the response. So uh, it, it makes sense to uh, keep the logic in uh, the view side rather than. Uh, so earlier, uh, I remember uh, sometimes we have to um, make some changes in the JavaScript to support this kind of feature. Uh, where you don't want to send a response, uh, where you don't want to send a request to the server, but still want to make some changes. Uh, but now what happens is that your code becomes a lot less duplicated because the same code, same view code uh, can be used for multiple purposes. Mm-hmm. And it's also really awesome for doing cache warming. So if you're doing some fragment caching within your view, you can send the job into the background to sidekick or rescue or something and actually have it re-render that view and it'll regenerate the cache from the view. So that way, next time the user comes to that page, it's going to still load up quickly with the new data because it does have to recalculate all of the stuff that you may have had in the view. Instead, it's already loaded into your cache store from the background job having re-ran that once the cache was stale. True. That is also possible. So what are we looking forward to in Rails 6? I mean, you mentioned the uh, parallel testing. Are there other features that are coming? Uh, Parallel testing is uh, one of the changes. Then uh, there will be some changes, I think, related to uh, performance as well. Uh, Eileen, you should tell, uh, gave a talk at RailsCon this year about um, having uh, scalable by default. Rails having scalable by default. So she's working on some of the uh, performance-related changes uh, which will uh, which will uh, be present in Rails 6. So uh, I think, yeah, uh, so it will be faster, I think, <laughs> than the previous releases. It's been hard to get information on the new uh, Rails coming out, um, but I'm excited for it. 
You know, as, as some of you know, I've switched over to Elixir and every single day as I'm in Elixir, I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I, I miss Ruby. I miss working in this environment that speaks my language. Um, so yeah, this is always a breath of fresh air on this podcast because I can get back to my roots and, and the language that I truly love. There was also a recent uh, pull request by DHH to uh, change to Webpacker by default in Rails 6 applications. So earlier, uh, the asset pipeline was used to uh, compile JavaScript, CSS uh, images by default. But now, uh, and Webpacker was provided as an optional uh, uh, like gem, which you can uh, use uh, when you start a new Rails application. But now with Rails 6, uh, the Webpacker will become default for compiling JavaScript and then uh, asset pipeline will be used to uh, compile CSS images and other stuff. So that will also be a very good change because then uh, you can use uh, the uh, NPM packages or any other uh, JavaScript world packages by default. Yeah, I like Webpacker, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what we get from that. All right, well, anything else we should jump on before picks? All right, I will take the silence as, uh, no, there's nothing else. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now, and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Let's go ahead and do some picks. Um, Eric, do you want to start us off? Um, yeah. So my pick is a little bit off topic today. Um, and uh, recently I found out, actually I was with Chuck when I found this out, that my sister, um, that, um, that somebody that I know is, is experiencing, um, uh, domestic abuse. Um, and she's a mother of, of four children and, and somebody I care for deeply. And, um, it's really hard to, to see this happen and the emotions that go along with domestic abuse and the justifications and the, the feelings of, I deserve this are not only unfounded, but it's, it's, it's just so hard to be able to look at that and say, you need to, you need to get out. Um, so I wanted to share today uh, as my pick um, the hotline.org, which is the website uh, that provides a hotline for anybody experiencing this to call or chat or talk and get some help if you are experiencing domestic abuse. Um, it, it's, it's a real issue. It shouldn't be happening, but it does. And there is help out there. And if you are experiencing this, please get help. Um, the phone number is 1-800-799-7233, or the website is thehotline.org. 
And that doesn't just apply to women, too. I mean, if you're a guy, if you're experiencing that, you know, put aside any kind of, you know, shame that you may have and just call. Because, you know, I was in a really abusive relationship where and this woman would just wail on me. And it's just, it's not right. So, you know, definitely second that. Yeah. And I, I just want to uh, back into this a little bit as well. You know, not all abuse is physical as well. Um, I, I think the physical abuse is the, I guess, the easiest to spot and is probably the kind of abuse that makes me the angriest that, that one person would do that to another. But yeah. if, if you're undergoing some kind, uh, certain types of emotional abuse or, you know, other mistreatment like that at that level, please get help. Uh, I have an uncle that went through years and years and years of that kind of abuse. Um, you know, it was all emotional abuse, um, emotional blackmail involving, involving his kids. Um, you know, and he, he eventually, you know, got out of that relationship. Um, but he's never quite been the same. And it's, it's really sad to see that, you know, it's, it's kind of held him back from being as happy as he could be. And so, you know what, um, there are a lot of emotional things that go on there, but, but definitely get help. Uh, Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. On a little bit lighter note, um, a book. So I have never recommended a book on the show because I really don't read books, but my wife has forced me to read this one and rightfully so. Uh, it's called Boundaries with Kids. It's about how to you know, try to approach and raise your children and discipline them because it's a problem that we have with our son. He is just wild, all boy, destructive and destroys everything. And he's starting to now get in that age of talking back. So uh, the title of the book is Boundary with Kids, When to Say Yes, When to Say No, to Help Your Children Gain Control of Their Lives. So if you have little munchkins that are terrorists, then definitely check out that book. And the other pick I have is a tool. So Chuck, you may like this one. It is uh, Rhino Ramps. So they are these really industrial strength plastic that are ramps for your car. So you can get your car up on some stands to actually do some undercarriage work. So it's great for changing oils or anything else that you need to do under the car. If you have just a foot of clearance that you need and they're only like 40 bucks. So to get your car lifted up on both wheels for 40 bucks, not too bad. Yeah. Um, I remember my dad had some of those when I was a kid. <laughs> we, we used to come up with uh, creative ways of using them. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> put a piece of plywood on there and take your bike over it. No, we never did that. No, that's neither. Neither. (laughs) All right. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. Um, So I've been doing a bunch of work on this, uh, this system for, uh, you know, managing the podcasts and I've just been having a lot of fun. I actually kind of pulled an all nighter last night because I was just enjoying it. So, um, I'm just gonna, you know, pick writing code for fun, even though this is for work, it's, it's been fun to work on. So I'm going to pick that. And then there's a system that, um, I was playing with the other day and I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um, it's called notion.so and, uh, it's, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. So, um, it, it, it has task lists, right? So you can put to-do lists in it but it also has places for you to put things like 
uh, notes and documents and things like that. And it, it all integrates nicely together. Um, a little bit more nicely than things like Google Docs, uh, which is what I've been using for this kind of thing otherwise. So uh, I'm going to pick that as well if you want to go check it out. Um, so far, it's been free. Um, I don't know at what point they make you pay for it, but uh, I've been pretty happy with it so far. So I'm going to pick that. And then um, since I did mention the, the podcasting app, uh, I am looking for a few folks. If you're running a podcast um, here within the next week or so, I'm going to be wanting to add people into the system uh, just to get a few more use cases that aren't mine and make sure that it works for other podcasters. So if you're interested in that, just email me, chuck at devchat.tv. Uh, Prathamesh, what are your picks? Uh, my first pick is uh, Rubicon India. Uh, next year will be 10th edition of uh, Rubicon India. Uh, it will be in Goa. So if you want to come and visit India and enjoy Goa, that will be the best time because it will be in uh, January, 20th and 21st of January. Uh, Mads is going to be there. Uh, Charles Nutter is also going to be there. And our CFP is also open. So uh, if uh, you're interested in uh, giving a talk, please submit the talk. Uh, there is a lot of time still. Uh, it will be open till uh, November, uh, end of November. So uh, a lot of time to go. Uh, and my second pick is um, our blog series on uh, Ruby 2.6. So uh, we have written uh, a few blogs on what are the upcoming features in uh, Ruby 2.6. And uh, we will be adding some more blogs. So Ruby 2.6 will be released in uh, December this year. And there are a lot of interesting features that are coming up. So uh, if somebody wants to uh, take a look at what are the new features, uh, uh, please uh, check our blog. One of the funny thing that uh, happens with these blogs uh, is that uh, when you search for something after a few years and uh, there is a high chance that uh, you can end up on your own blog. So that's why uh, we sort of write uh, these blogs because they are useful to uh, uh, us as well. So yeah, these are the two picks. Awesome. And if people want to find you online, um, you know, where you're blogging or uh, committing code or stating your opinion about things, where do they go? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and GitHub. Uh, I don't tweet that much, uh, but uh, still I'm uh, active there. All right. Well, thank you for coming and chatting with us for a few minutes. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you so much. All right. We'll wrap this up and we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.